By listing all of these names, Paul is saying, I am not a one-man show. I need others. Paul is saying, listen, the whole thing isn't riding on my shoulders. And isn't that the way we live? Apart from Jesus, when we are apart from nothing but Jesus, we live as if the whole thing, all of life, is riding on our shoulders. But yet, in this list of names, Paul shows us that we are a community, we are a family, the church together, that we share one another's burdens, that we're in this together. And Paul could have taken all of the credit. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. That meant that he didn't just share Jesus with the Jewish people, but he went out as a missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He even used a different name to reach the Gentiles. Saul didn't become Paul. Jesus didn't change Saul's name to Paul when he was converted. Jesus continued to call him Saul. He continued to be Saul after he was converted. Saul was the name that he would use in a Jewish context. Paul was the name that he would use in a Gentile context. Acts 13, 9 says this, but Saul, who was also called Paul. So his name wasn't changed the way Jesus changed Peter's name. He had two names. So my Spanish teacher from high school attends our church. I'm, I'm talking about ninth grade. That was back in the olden days, man. I mean, that was a long time ago. And she gave us each names, individual names for our Spanish class. Mine was Carlos. So whenever she sees me, she says, hello, Carlos. And we called her Senorita. Instead of Senorita, we would just call her Sen. A little weird. I still call her that when I see her. And my name for Spanish was Carlos. It's the same thing going on here, Saul and Paul. So you learned something today, right? So you can go home and that's something that you learned. But what's my point? He could have said, I've shared Jesus so much with the Gentiles that I'm going to be known as, as Paul for all time. I mean, I went out and I put my life on the line. I took this thing on. This thing was on my shoulders. Paul could have spent the entirety of Romans chapter 16 talking about himself. Number one, me, myself, and I, the Holy Trinity. Paul could have filled Romans 16 telling us about himself, but he doesn't. He has a team. He is not a one-man show. It is not all riding on his shoulders. He has a community of people that even Paul needs. Even Paul needs a community of people. I'll ask those of you who are parents, do your children have a community of people in the church that they are being surrounded by? Your children need to be surrounded by the community of God's people. This is a list of strangers to me and to you, but I want you to also think about how important each one of these people must have been to have made it into Romans chapter 16. And we can't even pronounce their names. Paul would mention them in the book of Romans. These important people. And they were, but yet they also aren't. They were just like us. Struggling not to live as if the whole thing is riding on our shoulders. These were important people. 
you know, I love time travel movies and I love time travel TV shows. And uh, there was one that we were watching a movie a while back and the main character, he had gone all the way back in time, several hundred years, and he became part of that community, part of that culture. Uh, there was many different plot lines. And then when he jumped forward to the present day, what struck me is that all the people from the past, they were all gone. All of them. All of the things that were important, all of the people, all of the leaders, all of the family, all the friends, all new people. It's incredible. We think we are so important. And at the end of the day, we are just like these people in Romans chapter 16. Here today and gone tomorrow. We went to uh, Washington, D.C. a while back, and we visited Arlington National Cemetery. And there's a grave site there for President John F. Kennedy. And for those of you who are kids um, and who don't know who John F. Kennedy is, and believe me, adults, when I talk to some of the kids, they truly don't know some of these things. It's really kind of scary. But um, he was assassinated, in, of course, in 1963. And everyone can remember, those of you who were alive then, where you were, what you were doing, who you were with when he was assassinated. And yet, here we were at Arlington National Cemetery, and there's his gravesite. There was no line to see it. It isn't that big of a deal. There was no secret service there. There was no entourage there. It was just his grave, this man where the entire world, he must have thought, was riding on his shoulders, here he is. And so I began to, I'm a little bit weird with illustrations, I apologize for that, but I was digging into this a little bit and I said, you know, there was a joint session of Congress right after he was assassinated. I wonder how many of those 435 representatives and 100 senators, I wonder how many of those maybe you're still in Congress. And not only are there none, I think, that are not in Congress, there's only two or three that are still even alive. All gone. All these powerful people, all of these people where they believed the world was riding on their shoulders, gone here today, gone tomorrow. And that's what I think when I read Romans chapter 16. Who were these people? They must have been incredibly important at some level. We are the only creatures on planet Earth who are conscious, we are conscious of the idea, not the idea, of the fact that we are going to die, that everyone we love is going to die, and everything we do is going to eventually amount to nothing. Isn't that a beautiful thought on Mother's Day? I mean, my dog Winnie... I love my little dog, Winnie. Never thought I would like a little dog. I love this little cute little dog. I always had big dogs, have a little dog, fell in love with her. My little dog, Winnie, she doesn't think to herself that one day she's going to die. I mean, I actually think about her death sometimes more than I think about some of your deaths. You know, I mean, I just love this little dog. This is proof that the whole thing isn't riding on our shoulders. It isn't. That's what I think of when I read this chapter. All of these people probably believed they were so important, and they are in some ways, but in other ways, they're not. And that's what Paul shows us all through the book of Romans, and what Paul shows us in chapter 16 by listing all of these names. He's showing us that, number one, he is free to not be a one-man show. 
He's free to give credit. He's free to have a community of people around him. And number two, he's showing us that this life goes by very fast. He's showing us that it's not all up to him. It's not all up to us. So many times we live our lives that way. I would say that we live our lives that way every time we disbelieve the gospel. You could say that we begin living our lives as if the whole thing is riding on our shoulders. When we think that life is up to us, when we believe that the whole thing is riding on our shoulders, we begin handling people. We begin extracting things out of people that we believe that we need. We, believe ta- we, we, we begin talking too much. We begin seeing people as a means to an end. When we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders, we don't know how to say no when we're asked to do something. When we're asked to do something where we know we're going to be extending ourselves too much. When we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders, we don't want to be associated with things when it's not going well. But when things are going well, we want to take all the credit. You know, I've taught my family this before. Um, When I die and, you know, hopefully, I mean, I guess hopefully there'll be a next guy who comes into their lives if I die, right? Um, This is very morbid, honestly. But here's what I will tell them is I'll say, you know, remember that if I die and this new guy comes in and he's all, you know, happy and he's doing all of these amazing things and he's this great guy, just remember that I was there for the hard part. Okay, kids? I was there changing diapers. I was there when you were teen. Because I just have this image of something happening to me. You know, they're all grown and adults. You know, everything's going well. And then he just comes in and he just takes all the glory from me, you know? And you see what I'm doing? I'm even trying to handle things in death. I mean, even in death, I'm laying there in the grave worried about whether or not I'm getting credit. I mean, it's really sick. It impacts our parenting, doesn't it? You know, um, a couple in our church, uh, Turner and Stephanie Jones, they just had a little baby. They just had a baby, Alex, and I saw Stephanie grow up. I've known Stephanie since, since she was three years old, and now she has a little one. And I started to think about, you know, parenting and, and what they're going to go through in parenting. And here's what happens when we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders. We want the baby to be healthy. We want the baby to begin sleeping through the night at about maybe six to seven weeks. You know, we want it to be a great ride where, you know, they're well-developed and they go to school and they're smart and they're no trouble to their teachers. And then they graduate and then they go to college, a good college, of course, with a great major. They find someone and the very first person that they find is a great Christian person. They marry them. They get a great job. Then they have grandbabies for us. You know, and then it comes back to us where we get older and older, older and older, and we're healthy and happy, and nobody around us dies, and then everybody's singing around our, around our deathbed at around 105 years old. <laughs> Perfectly healthy, and then we just kind of doze off to sleep, 
and that's it. And we do that, and we think that, and we think that we can control that. And so we begin handling our children, making decisions for them. I have news for you, those of you who are having babies now, you don't have any control. I mean, you have no control. You can be an influence, but at the end of the day, it's not all riding on your shoulders. God is sovereign. And we do that in a million different ways. Even in parenting, someone recently asked me something. You know, we were talking about law and gospel last week. And a parent actually said to me something like this. You know, isn't there a a real danger of my kids going astray and not getting the seriousness of all of this, of the Christian faith? You know, if I make such a distinction with law and gospel And I said, absolutely, there's a real danger. If you preach law, law, law to your kids, kiss them goodbye. And they said, well, I wasn't really saying that. I was saying that if I give them too much grace, too much gospel, is there a danger? Think about what we're saying. Are there people who truly believe that you can give too much of the gospel to our children? Are there people who truly believe we can give too much Jesus to our children? That's what we do when we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders. We give law, law, law. I know the danger of giving too much law because I've seen scores of kids walk away from the church when they become adults because their parents were law-based because they thought it was all riding on their shoulders. When we put it on Christ's shoulders, it becomes uncontrollable. It becomes unpredictable. It becomes something that we can't handle and control. Either way, when offering our children law, we're offering them a ministry of death. Offering something that just condemns. And that's what we do when we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders when it comes to being a parent. You know, the gospel breaks us down and changes us. It breaks us down. It changes us. We go from believing the whole thing is riding on our shoulders to being the way Paul is in Romans 16, where he can give the credit away and he can say that I need people in my life. By never letting our children see our weaknesses, by never apologizing to them, by being the, you know, the serious adult in the room at all times, when the one thing they need to see is our weakness. The one thing they need to hear is for us to say, I'm sorry, I'm broken, I'm sinful. When we believe the whole thing is riding on our shoulders, those words don't come out of our mouths. You know, when our children fall, when they fail, or when we, fall, when we fail and when we fall, do we think to ourselves, I really thought I'd be further along by now? Do we say that to our children? I really thought you'd be further along by now, instead of saying, isn't it great that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves? That is what changes the heart. That's the gospel. When we believe it's all riding on our shoulders, we can't admit mistakes. We talk too much. We have a need to be recognized. I mean, how many p- 
people do you think Paul forgot in Romans chapter 16? How many people do you think read that and said, oh, where's my name? Where's my name? You say, well, I don't need to be recognized. Well, what about when someone doesn't recognize one of your children? Or what if someone doesn't recognize, you know, an accomplishment, a great accomplishment, or your family, or whatever it may be? You don't have to dig very deep to see it. You know, men, I just have an announcement to make if you haven't caught this yet. Today is Mother's Day. Men, it's all riding on your shoulders today. <laughs> Forget everything I just said. I hope you're prepared. I was talking to some guys the other day and we were commenting and commiserating on how is it that we, as the husbands, are responsible for our wives on Mother's Day? I mean, they're not our mother, right? So when our wives heard this, that didn't go very far with them. You know, isn't it the kid's responsibility? Men, it's all riding on your shoulders today. Or is it all riding on the mothers, their shoulders? Or is it all riding on the women sitting here who maybe have longed to be a mother and you're not, or you've lost a child? Is it all riding on your shoulders? I came across this article, it's so good. It's by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick. I just wanna read it to you. And it really speaks to this whole idea of us bearing burdens that are not ours to bear. She says this, well, here it comes again, Mother's Day, or as I like to call it, the great day of guilt and discontent. Ugh. Men don't, do, men don't know what to do with it. It terrifies them. They hope that the gifts they've chosen will please their wives and mothers. They don't want to be known as an ungrateful person who failed to properly honor the woman who gave him life or birthed his children. Women don't know what to do with it either. Mother's Day angst sounds like this. I wish I were a mother. I wish I were a better mother. I wish I loved my mother. I wish my mother loved me. I wish my mom were still alive. I wish I hadn't aborted that child. I wish I could have children. I wish I knew who my mother was. I wish I hadn't given my baby away. I wish my children loved me. I wish they would write about me. I wish my child was still alive. Mother's Day, she writes, is the law. It breeds discontent and guilt. We live in a sin-cursed world and no matter how much we try to honor someone we love, it always seems to come out wrong. We can give the sweetest presents with the best intentions, but still, it just never turns out as we hoped it would. Don't misunderstand me, she writes. I'm not the sort of woman who would seek to ban a day when I have the power to make my husband and sons cook for me. I'm not that stupid. But I would like to bring some gospel sanity into it. Here's what's wrong with Mother's Day and every day that's a celebration of our own goodness. Anytime you seek satisfaction, honor, and glory in yourself, you're going to be dissatisfied. That applies to both women and men. 
Anytime you look for someone to give you something that will make you feel like you've done a good job or are finally a person of worth, you're going to be disappointed. Men will be disappointed because their wives or moms don't appreciate how much they try to appreciate them. Women will be disappointed because no matter how hard our husband and children seek to lavish us with praise, flowers, and gifts, there is always someone you know who has given much more than you. We're living under the law of Mother's Day. If you're good, you get goodies. In the words of my daughter, it's the one day when I'm forced to look at either my own shortcomings, resulting in guilt, or the shortcomings of others who will fail to appreciate me, resulting in discontent. It's the one day we're told over and over that our identity as women is not rooted in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, but in our own ability to be the source of life and goodness for all. When we judge whether we're finally okay based on the response of others rather than the gospel of grace. Mother's Day is the law, and that's why it breeds such discontent and guilt. The source of true happiness is not found in being praised or anything we have done. True happiness is found in dying to ourselves and celebrating what Christ has already done for us. True happiness is here. Listen, it is found in Jesus' work. The best gift any woman or man has ever received was given on another Mother's Day. This one was 2,000 years ago in a borrowing feeding trough. And when God was born and nursed at a young mother's breast, it continued to be given some 30 years later when that perfect son of man was nailed to a tree and his father turned away from him while his mother wept. No Hallmark cards, no sentimentality for Jesus. Nothing. Just blood and despair and an anguished, it is finished for us. It isn't all riding on your shoulders, not just to the mothers, to the husbands, to the men, to the children. And why, why, why isn't it all riding on your shoulders, on my shoulders? Well, we finally see that in Romans 16. Three words, united with Christ, in Christ. Verse three, greet Prissa, here we go, and Aquila, my fellow workers, there's two, two words, in Christ. Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were what? In Christ before me. Verse 9, greet Urbanus our fellow worker in Christ. Romans 16, 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Verse 11 and 12, in the Lord. Verse 13, finally one I can pronounce, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, in Christ. Last week, we unpacked what our mission statement, living to reach all people with nothing but Jesus, what it is and what it's not. 
And one of the sidebar questions that I asked became an important one to me, honestly. I mean, does nothing but Jesus even work grammatically? I mean, it doesn't, really. In a lot of sentences, it doesn't. And what I said was, that's good. We want it to be awkward and jarring. We want it to surprise you. It's good that it's awkward. In fact, nothing but Jesus should become its own word. Sounds like three words to me. How can it become one word? The Apostle Paul, who was accused of being a poor communicator by the Corinthian church, he was known for making up words. One of Paul's favorite themes was the theme we just read about, the reason why it's not riding on our shoulders, and it's united with Christ. These three words were not only grammatically awkward then, but they were equally theologically jarring. So Paul being Paul, instead of backing down in the face of criticism, he takes it even further in his description of what this jarring phrase, back then it was, united with Christ, meant. And he didn't do it by softening the phrase, but he invented more words. Crucified with Christ. Buried with Christ. Raised with Christ. Seated with Christ. Those are all very familiar language, Christianese to us, but back then Paul actually invented these words to describe what it means that it's not all riding on our shoulders. In the Greek, these three word phrases are each single words that begin with the prefix S-Y-N and they become one word, meaning with, with being crucified, with being raised, he had coined new words, grammatically awkward words, jarring words, surprising words to describe this beautiful reality of being united with Christ. He invents these words because it's not all riding on our shoulders if we're in Christ, if we're united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been something that happened in the past and continues today with present effects. We can know, listen, that this whole thing isn't riding on our shoulders because we are in Christ. To be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone anymore. Because who are you? You are in Christ and you don't need to fear the judgment of God anymore because when he sees those who are in Christ, he sees Christ. That's freedom. That's union with Christ, united with Christ. We are united with Christ in every part of his life, of his death. This past week was Ascension Day, even of his ascension. Like the Wesley hymn says, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, even the skies. Alleluia. It is finished. It isn't all riding on our shoulders. It rode on his shoulders. And unlike us, he made things happen. And that is what the whole message of Romans is about. That life isn't riding on our shoulders because Jesus took our sin. He took our pain. 
He took our problems, our shortcomings on his shoulders. The person I was before Christ, the person I am apart from Christ, isn't the person I am anymore. It's not the person you are anymore. We don't need to be reformed. We need to be reborn. We, need, we are given a new self in Christ. And because of that, we are free. What about you? It's a simple question. Do you feel like the whole thing, life, parenting, marriage, job, all of it, that you have to make it happen, that it's all riding on your shoulders? All of us face that. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 years. We all fall back into that every day. Every morning that we wake up, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, that we are united with Christ, crucified with Christ. And what could our lives be? What could your life be? What could our church be? If you were gripped, if we are gripped by the fact that it's not riding on our shoulders, that it's rode on Christ's shoulders. Romans 16, 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.